This week on the podcast, we've got a jam-packed episode. We're talking traps, dungeons, we're giving you free stuff, and a little update, the Mystic is still bad. Welcome to We Speak Common. Hello and welcome to another episode of We Speak Common, brought to you in partnership with the Dice Dungeon UK, where you can get yourself some really, really nice metal dice, including a brand new set coming out very soon that we helped name and build the law for. We'll talk more about that and uh, the giveaway, which closes today a little bit later. First, though, Joe, you right, mate? Benjamin, yes, I'm uh, doing all right, pal. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I am... um semi-relaxed from my week off it's been quite nice mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i've still got a few days ahead of me just to chill out before i go out and do my final ever radio show at the uh, current station which is um my goodness i know it's it's big stuff mate big stuff what are you going to be playing then um well because we've been bought by a new radio station i will be buying a new company i'll be playing their um their choice of music but <laughs> i've got a <laughs> I've got a little uh, a little surprise for the, the final link, so I've got a little uh-huh. a little send off I'm gonna do which will be nice. So will there, be will there be tears shed, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I'm an I'm an emotional person. There'll be um I've I had to the other night, I went to a couple of weeks ago, I just couldn't I couldn't get to sleep, I couldn't shut off and I ended up writing crying. My, my final link. No, not crying, not quite. Oh. Um no, I've got I've got past that stage. Um <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I've got I've got until uh, next Thursday off work and then I'm going back for the last two days of of the radio station as it is at the moment and then in September I start my new role so that's going to be it's going to be interesting wow new chapter mate brand new chapter how are you? Uh, yeah about the same mate really you know it's weird just... we're both kind of getting to that new sort of next step aren't we? mm-hmm yeah no I mean I'm just uh, whittling down the days as they say uh, and um, just living through the hellhole that is this year, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still going. Just continuing to exist, which mm-hmm. I think in a, in itself is a win, really. Yeah, I mean, you're doing well at the moment. <laughs> if you're out there and you and you're still going, yeah, you're doing good. Don't worry about it. Oh, Dungeons and Dragons, Ben. What what's the uh, what's the news on the street? Um, the news on the street is actually uh, a little bit thin. The latest D and D news we've had is about Baldur's Gate three, mm-hmm. um, but but it's all it's all good. We're all, we're looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. We were just discussing, weren't we? How you know basically we were complaining about the early access and how <laughs> it only goes to level four and you know and then and then I just remembered I'm just gonna be a paladin. I'm just gonna hit and smite things, and I'm just gonna do that the entire game anyway. So. Yeah. And look, it I'm, basically has no relevance to me. I'm only going to be a wizard. I'm not going to replay it as any other class because I don't care about the other classes. Well, I do, See, but... Do you want to know a fun fact, Ben? Go on. Go on. Are, you, are you ready for this? Okay. Hit me with it. In all of my Dungeons & Dragons time, every mm. game I've ever played, mm. uh, pretty much... I'm trying to think. I just want to make sure this is an accurate statement. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Mm. Every single game I've ever played, I've only ever played a human or a, a wood elf. No. Yep. Okay, so this is a bit skewed, though, because we are both the 
the forever DMs, really. We we DM much more than we play as players. So bear that in mind. I have been... What have I played as? I've been a Dragonborn for a very brief one shot. I've been a Goliath, human, half-elf and elf for sure. I think... Ben, even in both my one shots, you know what I played? Yeah. I played a wood elf. Yeah. You do have a problem. <laughs> I just I can't get away from it. <laughs> I've never been a fighter. See, that's a shame because uh, a fighter, I think, is actually a great class. Really, really fun. Mm. I love the fighter in 5e. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get that on the surface it is kind of boring. I would agree. But I think that it has depth, you know, that you um, you can extract a lot of enjoyment from it if you if you delve into the mechanics and and i think that's it's a fun class because you can you have quite a lot of options actually on how you build it mm. so because they have proficiency in basically everything and they get loads and loads of feats uh or asis you just can you can just do what you want with the fire which is uh yeah there's a, a fun. there's a sort of weird stereotype or, or or thinking that like the fighter is like the simple class like oh it's just a fight you swing things you swing swords and hit things but it's really not you can do a lot with it and actually watching you play a high level fighter in um james's not a one shot was so much fun because it's like i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot six arrows in the space of I'm going to shoot like nine arrows, so which is like one and a half arrows per second this round. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, let me just catch people up to speed on yeah, uh, do, do the math. So basically, it's a really silly build that's just it's just made for doing damage. I'm a battle master, but all I ever spend my maneuvers on is precision, like the precision shot in case I miss, and I power strike or um, yeah, power shot every round with sharpshooter for the extra plus ten damage. Uh, I've got a longbow. It would actually be more efficient with a crossbow, but I won't longbow. Or a hand crossbow, rather. And, uh, yeah, and then I just shoot a bunch of times. Right now I've got three shots. We'll have four eventually. Uh, obviously, action surge, six shots. And they're all doing a minimum of uh, 19, 18 damage, I think, because I've also got a plus three bow. Yeah. And obviously plus five to my stats. So I'm just pumping out like 100 damage every round. It feels amazing. It's excellent. It's funny it's, because it's it's one of those ones where we sit there, we're, we're around the table, and you go, I'm going to, um, I'm just going to shoot my arrows again. And then you just roll some dice, you go, yep, that's 60,000 damage, the, I'm done. And the, th- <laughs> the thing that's so fun with it is because of how it's built, and I get no disadvantage on long range, and I can shoot up to like 600 feet with a long bow, yeah. and I don't, I ignore cover and everything. So I can shoot a goblin through an arrow slit in a tower from 600 feet away. And it's <laughs> literally really easy for me. And I've done that in the game before. It's just, it's really fun. It's just, you are Legolas. I used to think like, oh, Joe's not having fun because he's just, he's just like, I'm just going to shoot it again. And, and I'm like, oh, are you not, are you not enjoying yourself? But then we, we take our break and you're like, I'm having so much fun just doing damage. It, so. It's fun, man, to just, it just feels good to pump out the damage. What can I say? I'm, like you say, when you DM a lot, right? And then you get to play, you generally just go for that simple experience, don't you? And mm. for me, that simple experience is just doing the damage. And it's kind of unique because it's not even, I don't actually even roll many dice. No. I, it's all flat damage bonus. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's good fun. And fighters, obviously, there's lots of things you can do. I, 
I do want to do a uh, Polar Master Sentinel uh, Great Weapon Master build. Mm. Just lock down damage annihilation would be pretty fun. Yeah, uh, that would be good. That would be a good fun build. I want to play. Um, I, I mean, now this will be a shock to listeners because I don't think we've mentioned this on the podcast. But I actually now want to play a sorcerer, and uh, I know that we always shit on the sorcerer quite a lot, but. I found on Reddit, uh, I'll have to find out who it is, a rebuild of the Sorcerer that actually, I, I sent it to you and I sent it to James and I said, give me your thoughts on this. And I think all three of us may, came to the same conclusions on the little tweaks that we'd make and then said, actually, yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. So there is a um, a Sorcerer rebuild out there. It's by uh, <laughs> the user on Reddit, it's called Laser Llama. Um, and it uses the spells, uh, the spell point system, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. There are like some small changes I'd make, and then it would be like just chef's kisses, perfect. The gist is essentially use the spell point system to give it much more flexibility, mm. and you also the guy came up with a bunch of new meta magics, and they're also more flexible in how you can switch out meta magics on long rests and things. Yeah, uh, what's cool about it. Is a lot of these meta magics allow you to just change the saving throw of a certain spell uh, that you cast, and it's not too OP in that they're limited, especially by a level as well. So the more mental saves or the ones you'd really want to target, like charisma and stuff, you, it takes a while to get that. But and it it takes up a lot of your meta magic slots. But what's cool is you can then start throwing out things and be quite tactical about it because. If you're, say, fighting a creature, it behooves you then to figure out what its worst saving throw is, because mm. then you can capitalize on that and start targeting it and, and you know, start whacking out your disintegrates, but it actually targets, um, I don't know, charisma or whatever it is, right? Yeah. That, that, that whatever they're low in. So you can actually be much more successful with your, your save or suck spells or your hold persons, your hold monsters. It makes those spells more desirable when you've got a much better chance of them landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty cool. I think as well with the, I think we said it before in the in the spell point episode, if you haven't heard it yet, I think that's a really, it's one of my favorite episodes we've done. It was a really good conversation, I think. Um, and it's something I really want to use in the game. But the, uh, the, the feel and the original draw to the sorcerer back in old... Well, I think it was second edition onwards was that the sorcerer could use magic the way we use magic now and you you know and wizards had to prepare two magic missiles if they wanted to use two magic missiles in a day so when you look at this system and the ability to create more spell slots rather than having the set number it gives that feel back to the sorcerer and I think that's just what it needs so I'm, I'm really keen to give that a go at some point see it's interesting because I really do think a lot of these classes can be saved with relatively minor tweaks. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's a fairly large overhaul with Sorcerer, but it's still... You haven't changed the fundamentals of the game in any way. No. The base game mechanics don't need to change. Uh, and it even uses I, rules that are given to you to use in the DMG if you want to as well. So it's not like we've, you've had to come up with something Again, new for this it. brings me back to my theory that no one actually reads the DMG, myself included. <laughs> because I honestly don't think I've read much of it. Like, I just, I open the book, Ben, and I just find myself on the Magic Items page. Yeah. That's all I can... That's, that's the only bit that matters. Yeah, it does seem that way. <laughs> I mean, have you ever used the, uh, like, dungeon generation tools and things when i get really really stuck then i do but i haven't 
ever like when i get into the mood to create a dungeon it's usually because i've got an idea in my mind and i don't need help like i've already got something to go off i've got a motif or a, or a creature i'm making it for so i just go off of that but then mm. there are times when i'm like oh I, I feel like i want to be creative but i've got no inspiration that's when i look at those sections and i might see, roll some yeah. dice to get some ideas see in my game uh i do have a large dungeon that i'm currently prepping I've been prepping it for like yonks, basically. Surprise. Like very my like doing, but doing like one room a month or something. <laughs> uh, but now it's at the point where the the players could come across it relatively soon if they they sort of streamline towards it. So, and it's a pretty big, massive thing. So I did briefly look at those, but I have this weird like pride thing, and it makes no sense because it's only me who actually knows about it. Mm. But I'm like, I'm like. Okay, so I see a cool idea online for something. And I'm like, oh, but I can't use that because I didn't come up with it. <laughs> it's this is my world. I it's it's cheating if I if I use anyone. But it's so ridiculous because basically all my ideas are stolen anyway. I've yeah. just convinced myself that they're my ideas. <laughs> but yeah. it, it's, so it's it's I have this constant battle with myself where I'm like, oh, but I need to be original. This no. needs to be so mine. The trick is is to take the idea that you like and just change it enough to make it original. It's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the werewolf. Like, oh that's such a such a standard monster, but I'm gonna make it a werebore and now it's original. <laughs> and now it's my idea. Yeah, well I did have that because I had this whole dungeon but the dungeon has like one unique mechanic, which I've not seen anyone else do. So it's like my idea. And then I'm like, okay, all the rest can be plagiarized now. Because uh, <laughs> you've got that one bit. <laughs> that one bit that's sort of mine. Yeah. So <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, oh, mate. Well, look, we um, we do have a topic. We uh, had a couple of emails in, just some nice ones. Uh, Josh, who, who we went through some stuff for him a couple of episodes ago just dropped an email to say thanks really appreciate it he said he wants us to um he has a challenge for us to come up with a brand new race and class not a subclass he specifically says not a subclass a full-on class uh and i i just sort of uh, laughed because <laughs> i've never done that before i wouldn't even well, know where to start well i think is i think D actually has conceptually Mm. A lot of the options are all kind of covered. And yeah, yeah. the ones that aren't exactly are pretty much covered by a subclass. I would I would it's difficult to imagine an idea that would require an entirely new class. Mm. Um And I have seen there are a lot of classes out there on Reddit, on the internet, like witch or shaman or um the cook, Joe. You love the cook, the chef. Yeah. Um but I've never sat down and thought, I really want to play this type of character. How could I do it? And realized I had to make a whole new class. It's something I'd be up for doing. I just have no idea where I'd start, you know? Yeah. I, I, like I said, I'm just trying to think of the concept. Uh, like The ones I can think of is obviously like Matt Mercer's Blood Hunter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Blood Hunter is interesting. But I think you could, you could get a similar vibe from it from other classes from multi-classing uh it feels the blood hunter feels like it could be a, a ranger subclass to me obviously the obviously you wouldn't actually want to do that because the ranger is kind of crappy yeah. as a base yeah. but conceptually it feels like it should be some sort of rangery subclass um obviously it would be less fleshed out in that case with options but 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to think what sort of... Uh, the only thing I can think of is, like, the, the Mystic. That yeah. obviously does require its own class, but we don't we don't talk about the mystic. We don't uh, we don't ever want to talk about the mystic. I I don't think that's something I want to even think about tackling. To be honest, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, Wizards of the Coast tackled it, and the best they could come up with with thir- was thirty pages of nonsense. <laughs> that, that's that not, break your that's game, not so. even an exaggeration. That's it's. Oh. I mean, let's be yeah. honest. When when we talk about Estroff and and how that campaign is slowly dying out. Um, it's the mystic's fault. Uh, <laughs> it just has an answer to every question. Literally everything, and it and there's so many notes that I can't, as a DM, even go into no, them and think like, James how can could I just be making this? it up, and we wouldn't know. I I just have to trust him because I don't have enough room in my brain to read that class and keep it in there. Yeah, he just says whenever we come across a problem, he's like, like for instance, that one time where we were fighting, and you were like, oh no, James, it, it seems you can't reach the enemy, it's all difficult terrain, uh, you're not going to be able to get there this turn. He's like, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some of your mystic points, and I'm going to spin this around, I'm going to do this, I'm going to drop this thing that I'm holding right now, I'm going to drop up this, this thing other thing, that and then I'm going to jump 400 feet. And we're like, <laughs> okay. I guess, I guess that is what you're gonna but do. But it's not even—it's—it's it's worse than that though, because he's like, oh, "I'm gonna—I'm gonna stop using this thing that lets me passively see through walls, and then I'm gonna pick up this thing that lets me fly, as well as this thing that lets me jump through space and time, and then I'm gonna double crit." Your you know boss what I love as well. I, you know, how we talk about how the capstones are kind of uh, broken. Not like, well, yeah, they're just kind of not that good. A lot of them yeah. uh, compared to others. Uh, not the case for the mystic. The mystics is just literally, I can't die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm immortal. <laughs> essentially, I, I never rest. <laughs> it's oh. literally just like, hey, you kill me? No, you don't actually kill me. I remember uh, as well when Wizards of the Coast. I think in their unearthed arcana, one of them they came out and they made, they had a little box note at the start or the end that said, "Look, we just want to let you know that we are." actively saying now that we're going to leave psychonics in the past but we're going to stop doing it because we can't find a way to make it work and i i remember a lot of people were like but why psychonics like there's a lot of love for that stuff there's a lot of love for that lore and that that weird kind of psychosedelic shit that you can do and i now i'm like do you know what yes let's just let's leave it behind but the thing is the psionics was less um it was. It felt like less psionics to me in the D and D sense because in the D and D sense you think of things like mind flayers and and aberrations and their sort of powers is all psionics based. Mm. Uh, the alien stuff. Or even if you think of say psionics in a more of like a superhero sense or whatever, you think of like Professor X and, and mind manipulation and that sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't really do a lot of that. It more just gave the mystic superpowers. Yeah. Just gave him, just gave them literally like superpowers. You are basically become Superman. And I'm just, and so I, I don't really see the connection there. Shouldn't it be more related to what those other creatures and, and things can do? I mean, I would like a mystic that really is about manipulating other people's minds, basically, with psionic power and really delving into their brains. But, in a way that feels a bit more, say, mind flare-ish. So, um, something like, like for instance, the mystic can 
sort of possess an ally or whatever and give them an extra attack for yeah. a second. Yeah. Do that, but like for enemies, get them to attack each other or it would be cool if there was like a real mind control element to the missing. Or I think of things like XCOM, right? Mm-hmm. And their psionic powers that the aliens have. If you could translate that into a uh, a player character, I think that would be really cool where you're really messing with people. Um as opposed to say, yeah, I just see through walls and can fly. Uh, I'm just <laughs> okay, great, sure, you do you. Um, maybe maybe the mystic is the class we should we should build from scratch. But I think yeah, oh, I'd actually have to read it. I oh, mean, God. it just it just didn't feel balanced. It was like, and what was weird? Everything scaled to ridiculous levels. So. In one instance, guys, we were in this cave and whatever, we were fighting some bad guys and whatnot, and the mystic was like, okay, hmm, there's a pit like 50 feet away, um, and I have a push ability, it does damage push ability, but if I just spend all my mystic points on it, it now pushes him 400 feet away, and it's like, where's the... Like, where's the limit? Where's cap? the cap? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, it's... is there anything in your book there, James? Your literal Bible that says you can only use three mystic points per turn? Like, no. Well, here's the thing. That it's it's capped on level, right? Right. But I'm like five mystic points, fifty feet. You know, there's very few things that push you fifty feet in all of D D. Mm. Like, I seriously don't think the Mystic would have trouble with, say, uh, like the Tarask. Just push him away. Okay, so now that you've brought up the Tarask, let me let me tangent this conversation into something. Is this going to be sort. about the elk thing? Have you seen it? I've seen the elk thing, yeah. So you, might, you should explain it for the, the listeners. In rules as written, an elk can charge a Tarask and knock it prone. Mm-hmm. So the elk rolls to hit. It would have to roll a, roll 20, a 20. Yeah, because it's got a plus five to charge. It gets 25, it hits the Trask, right? The Trask takes no damage because the Trask has immunities that negate all of the effects of the Elk. It makes... Uh, it doesn't make a save to be not prone, does it, as an Elk? So... Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. It does need to make a save, but the it can, if it rolls, I believe, a one or a two. That's it. knocked down. Yeah. So a one or a two, the Trask falls over, prone, from no damage, <laughs> from an Elk. <laughs> <laughs> and and, oh, and for perspective, an elk is a medium creature. I'm pretty sure Tarask is like gargantuan, if not bigger. Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be like Godzilla, isn't it, basically? Oh. Uh, what I love, though, I love the idea is you could have like a bunch of druids summon like 200 elks. And just, and, just try. <laughs> and sort of like almost, you, that gives you like a 70% chance of knockdown there. Yeah. Just have a, a, a you, stampede of elks. You would have to just, as if you did that in my game, if you brought that bullshittery to my table... I'd just say like, look, we're not going to roll these dice. We're just we're just going to roll a percent or dice and see if you <laughs> see if see if you get seventy or lo- or lower. Um, and then and then I guess, but in that sense, it's a bit more. You can sort of play it off because you can say, oh well, the stampede of elk all together push the Tarasco. But like that's a bit more plausible. One elk. Yeah, but look how yeah, but look how no no because Ben, it's it's you have two hundred elk, but they will act individually. So it's right. just one after the other. So just basically like... what you're saying is it's the equivalent of the Tarask stubbing his pinky toe and it hurting so much that he falls over. Yeah, yeah. It's like they all they all fly into him like little Nerf bullets from Nerf guns. <laughs> uh, but then one just strikes true, you know? <laughs> it's Nerf or nothing. 
Oh. <laughs> Amazing. Don't ever talk to me again. Oh. <laughs> we um we haven't played D and D for like two weeks now, so we're kind of we we've we've just got all this pent up Dungeons and Dragons energy, and it's like coming out at I this know. point. Look, we should it's talk crazy. about our um our actual topic before we do. Let's talk about um let's talk about Dice Dungeon because we have got something pretty exciting going on. So last week, last episode, episode ninety eight, we announced our episode 100 giveaway with dice dungeon we are giving away a full arcane prison set which means four sets of dice one of each of the arcane prisons to four lucky listeners all you've got to do is um enter on our twitter now that closes today so if you're listening to this on thursday your last chance to go and enter is on our twitter and on the dice dungeon twitter you'll see pinned tweets on our accounts so go and get involved it's a follow a like a retweet that kind of thing um and then we will be announcing the four winners next week in episode 100 so and then we'll do we'll do a tweet afterwards just in case you know just to just double double back up that that fun little announcement so you know fingers crossed we've had quite Mm. quite quite a lot of interest so far to be fair yeah i mean it might be it might have something to do with the immense value of the giveaway yeah (laughs) so i didn't realize this but all four sets comes to 128 pound 128 pound worth of dice see this is what we do for you. We we uh, you know we schmooze with the uh, the corporations and we bring you the goods. And all you have to do is just listen to this drivel every week. Really, Literally. I think it's an excellent trade. It is. It's it's an honest, honest to god, great trade. Um, but the the guys at Dice Dungeon are brilliant. Um, and it's it's really cool that they're doing that. And it's really really fun that we've been able to name one of their sets. So if you um are entering the contest because you want to win the Kirill the Golden set that we've helped name and build the law to, uh, we will um we'll tell you when they come out properly. It's like two weeks after the giveaway, later in September. So we'll um we'll tell you about that too because they're a really really cool set. And it's just it's just fun to know that we helped do that. You know. Yeah, um, our, our characters are I- I- enshrined do you in want, law. I actually wrote the law and sent it to uh, the guys at the Dice Dungeon. Do you want me to read it to you? Do it. The actual it. written story. So the official. The the official law. Here we go. Kirill the Golden. To seal away the evil powers in the arcane prisons, two adventurers, the wizard Orlo and the paladin Galahad, set off to complete a powerful and ancient rite. They approached the holy good race of the Corin and sought an audience with their god Kirill. It's good naming. After hearing their call to banish evil, Kirill agreed to give his power and self to the ritual. After the dust settled, the rite performed, Orlo and Galahad delivered Kirill the Golden, sealed in his own prison as payment for the powerful magic to a resting place in the Temple of the Corin. It is said that in their own demi-plane, sealed away from all in the arcane prisons, Kirill fights the endless battle against the ancient evils Gaius, Trida, and Nox. Listen closely as you roll the golden arcane prison. Some say you can hear the thunder of thousands of Corin stampeding with every roll. Ah, oh, nice. Hey, cool. you know, Orlo, what, what's his charisma set? Uh, it's not great. Um, I've got to try and think. I was going to say, I, I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, I suspect Galahad did the talking in that, uh, in yeah. that encounter there. <laughs> Orlo is the... Um, a bit of convincing. Orlo is the, uh, the like, uh, he's the occult guy. He um, he has all the, the knowledge mm. of the, the evil stuff. And Galahad's definitely the one that's like, I'm good and you're good. You can you can mm. do this great so thing. Orlo, Orlo the, the, the one-handed wizard occult leader who knows about all the evil stuff but you continue to insist is not evil yeah is that... yeah right yeah okay. he's just he just researches the evil stuff he's just interested in it mm, mm, yeah sure sure he hasn't sure, sure. he hasn't used any of it yeah 
Yeah, yeah. that's a factually correct statement. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his arm is uh, his his prosthetic that he's been given by the artificer uh, now has the powers of like a mind flare tentacle whip. So that's kind of a bit dodgy in itself. It's a little bit, a little bit evil. Um, before we move on, as well, I should say, last episode, uh, I said that the Dice Dungeon Nebula collection was coming out in a couple of weeks. I was completely wrong. It is out now, and they are gorgeous. So, if you want some really nice resin dice that are named and look like actual real life constellations in the galaxies, then um, go and check those out. Mm. And remember, as well, we speak common at checkout. Get ten percent off. Fair enough. Cool. Fair enough. Okay, do you want the actual topic now that we're half an hour into this episode? <sighs> Might as well, Ben. Might as well. Cool. I want to talk about puzzles and in turn traps because they are something that when I first started playing D&D seven years ago, um, I thought were really, really important. And I was like, I've got to put a puzzle in every dungeon. Ah! Um, but then that's quite difficult to do and be original with speaking of originality earlier now i tend to not use them as much uh traps i use and especially with cowrie and building heists and like building into that power fantasy of a rogue like finding the the trapped lock and picking it and avoiding it that kind of stuff like i build that stuff in but actual puzzles not so much and i wanted to talk to you about it just get your thoughts on it how you feel about puzzles and then later traps and uh, and how you use them because the one thing i have noted in my brain is that it's a really cool trope to come to a dungeon and there'd be a riddled door and, you know, and if you fail it three times, the door locks or, or whatever, or, or the room crushes or something. But then there's that whole thing of why. Like, how, why is it there? How do you get around it? Why is the, the person, the architect of the dungeon, built that riddle? And in turn, if they've built that riddle, how come when you get there, there's a clue to help you figure it out? Mm. I mean, for, so for me, yeah, the whole concept of of traps and riddles and puzzles in that essence is a bit hokey. Mm. Uh, it's more of like a uh, a challenge game set up by whoever built the the dungeon at that point. I mean, for me, I don't really, I very rarely use puzzles or riddles in that sense in my games. Uh, I haven't really in the current game I'm running very much at all. For me, the puzzles and the riddle aspect, that problem solving, generally comes in the players finding a scene or finding a location or a room or whatever. And the the environment tells a story, right? And then the players are there to figure out what has happened mm. in the past or what what has led this room to being in the state it's in what story is the environment trying to tell them and so it's more of like a passive investigation that way there's generally there's not a lot of stakes or danger the reward is you learn more about the world and have a greater understanding of where you are like for instance i think the the like when you were in that frost giants uh the temple castle temple whatever yeah that yeah. little fort um you guys, so Gazroth went to pick a lock, but he couldn't because he, he realized there was a like a blade jammed in there. So he actually rolled really well and managed to pick the lock from the other side. Uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, and he took that that blade out, right? And he 
he sort of figured out and surmised that the blade was jammed from inside the door to, to stop anyone opening it. Opening it. Mm-hmm. And when you did open it, you saw sort of like a fried uh, skeleton on the on the other side. It, was, it looks pretty bad. And then later on, you and there was all like lightning marks and sparks all shattered the in the other marks, side of the room. Yeah, and it he's like you sort of surmise that the the blade had taken some sort of current uh, through the keyhole. And then later on, you figured out that all these frost giants had been killed by other giants, uh, either cloud giants or maybe even uh, storm giants. And then through some more sort of investigation and whatnot, you guys kind of came to the conclusion that, okay, so whoever was in there, a frost giant or whatever, had jammed that big blade into the keyhole to stop it being opened, and then the storm giant had just zapped the keyhole and, like, conducted through the blade and just killed everyone in that room. Mm. And so, but it, that, that that was like a process of figuring out what had actually happened in that room. Yeah, so that's more like contextual puzzle solving. And I yeah, think- exactly. And that's generally what I do. I generally don't have like a crystal maze type <laughs> uh, experience in my games. Not to say there's anything wrong with it, but it's just not something that particularly interests me as a DM. And I find yeah. that I'm not particularly good at doing those, those type of encounters, uh, in terms of pace, I like to coordinate my games in a way where I can ramp up or ramp down the pace, depending on what the players are doing, to give them a more optimal experience, a more like cinematic experience, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say as to railroad them in any way, but just to add or take away encounters that I'd planned, uh, add little descriptions and whatnot that can inform the players of what's going on, push them in different directions. So if I feel like things are slowing down, I can speed it up, etc. And I find that in those encounters where they just have to solve a puzzle or whatever, really the speed of that encounter is just based on their, not uh, not even based on their intelligence to solve it, because oftentimes it's based on how quickly can they figure out how I as the DM was thinking at the time <laughs> when I made this, because it, it's almost like... Um, point and click adventure games sometimes where the answer is just so like ridiculously abstract that the writer must have been up at like 4am coming up with that solution and mm-hmm. just and just put it in there so i think part of it's just i'm not very good at those i mean i don't know if you put those sort of encounters in your games mm. or not well i think the the contextual storytelling puzzling side of things is f- a fantastic tool for any any storytelling experience, whether it's D and D or or like book writing or, or anything. Because if you give clues, your your reader or your players or, or your viewer, whatever form you're taking this story in, is solving a puzzle in their brain without realizing it, and that's kind of what you've described. So I think that's um that's a really good point to make, and and something we should remember is that kind of always using puzzles in that way but not in the sense that we're making crystal maze style experiences um i have uh, i haven't done one for a while that i experienced one as a player recently um in a little orlo adventure that he went off on and it was a good fun experience because it got us it was me and one other person as players, there's only two of us. It got us thinking about these riddles that we were coming up against and and why they were there. We were basically going into like a secret vault hidden away. It has all these evil relics hidden in it and someone had broken in and we were sent to go and 
basically make sure that those people that had broken in had either died or make sure they didn't get away with anything. So the setup was that the security system, quote unquote, for this sort of warehouse vault thing had kicked in. And that included these weird riddles that if you answered incorrectly, uh, set off traps that killed you. And if you answered them correctly, it disabled them. So in that sense, like as a player, that was quite fun because contextually for me as a player, it's like, right, here's something that tests me and not the role of the dice, which can be fun to bring into the game. And in a story sense, it makes complete sense why this is here and why there is an answer to turn it off rather than just a thing to stop people from getting in like it it was a system that was designed to give you a way through if you knew what to say um it's kind of like a security question like you kind of want to give a little bit of a clue to the answer in case you as the person who is meant to know the answer forgets it so that was quite a fun experience i remember like back in the day building puzzles and riddles and things and thinking like oh this is great they'll never get it they'll spend a good 20 minutes trying to work this out and then it goes either one of two ways either they get it straight away and you're like oh shit i need to like ah well i've got more time now for them to do something else or Mm. they take the whole session and they don't figure it out and it becomes a slog and it's like the same as if combat gets grueling this thing that they they, becomes a stop down they can't then push through so my experience has been has been both positive and negative but i think for me it's like use it sparingly don't use it all the time Mm. yeah i i think it's something that you just have to do quite a bit and be quite good at before it, it becomes a seamless part of the game um i find that for myself uh it's just not an aspect that I want to really delve into too much. Uh, same with like mysteries or murder mysteries, that sort of thing. Mm. I think there can be mystery, but the traditional murder mystery or solving serial killer crime or whatnot can be really good. But I think it takes a hell of a lot of setup. Just how like if you're writing a murder mystery story or whatnot, for it to feel realistic and exciting to the player or the the listener or reader or whatever you need it just needs a lot of forethought given into it uh like for instance if we take uh like i watched uh knives out not too long ago right which is oh, a murder mystery. such a good yeah. film the, the the genius of a film like that or films along those lines is if you're attentive enough as a viewer you can solve the murder mystery before the characters do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of the the gem of it, and the the symbology and and things like that. And you can do similar stuff in D anD. d Obviously, you're going to solve it as fast as your character solve it because you're playing them. But it gives a lot of agency to the players to do that. But it needs to be done in a way where those options are presented in a way that's just subtle enough that they feel fulfilled when they pick up on them. But not so, uh, not so subtle as to be. You got to be thinking Fairly in obvious. a weird way that I, and that's yeah. my always my concern is like, okay, I've come up with this stuff, and I feel like because oftentimes in my D and D games, I come up with stuff, and I'm like, this is so simple, the players are definitely going to pick up on this, and then they never see it, and I'm just mm-hmm. like, how, like, what? Are we playing two different games here, guys? What's what's going on? But they're just thinking <laughs> the- about other things. 
Yeah, and that's tricky because as a DM, and I and I do this too, as a DM all the way through, I'm I'm always thinking like, okay, are they picking up what I'm putting down? Are they getting the story beats in the right way? Because I'm trying to give them this information. And I think like when I was running, when I ran Curse of Strahd years ago, I remember checking in every now and then with my players and being like, okay, so how do you feel about the story? Like, what are your thoughts? What's going on? And I'll still do that occasionally, like every now and then, like especially with Dragon Heist, but like, okay, so how are you thinking? Like, what, what are your theories? Tell me them. Just so I can get a sense of where the players are at. But I feel like now, having done it a lot more with Dragon Heist, I'm watching the players pick up the beats. And there are moments when I'm like, ah, I get a big smile on my face because you've said something that I've been waiting for you to say for like five sessions. You've finally put two and two together. And for me, that's really satisfying. But when you're trying to build that experience it's difficult to forget that you as the DM have this plethora of information in the back of your mind that the the players have no idea even exists. And not because mm. they should, you know, the players don't need to know every single piece of uh, an NPC's backstory or history to be able to understand that that person's done X, Y, and Z because of this, this, and this, and therefore they're the person we're after. But there will be, and there always is, extra bits of information that we as the DM have that if the players want to delve into it more, as sometimes they do, we can give them the full reason and give them the full breakdown of what happened. So when you're building those clues and you're building that story, it's like, how do I, how do I give you enough information that you, how do I give you the minimal information that you need compared to mm. how do I make sure that there's an option for you to have the extra uh, fluffy information, the, the flavorful bits as well. And that's just, I don't know, that's one of those things that, uh, it's a bit of a cop-out answer, I think, but I think that is one of those things that you get over time when you know your group. Because if I compare the way our group plays Dragon Heist now, after playing for them for seven years, and back playing campaigns back in the first year, there were times when we'd sit down for a, around the table and you guys would be like, we don't know what to do. We're not sure where we're going because we don't know you know why is this we've got these random bits of information we don't know how these two puzzle pieces fit together and i'm sitting here as the dm thinking well that's because you missed the middle bit how do i get you the middle bit again now when we play i'm like right okay you've got that you've got that you need this puzzle piece you need this puzzle piece here are some ways that you might find out about it and i can string it all together and play the the actual puppet master in the background and you you don't know it's happening but you're as players always finding bits of information that link together in some way and as the sessions go on you're always connecting them so it's it's a mix of experience and knowing how the players minds work i think mm, yeah it's the more you understand your players the more you'll be able to cater these experiences towards them in a way that they're gonna pick up on in a more streamlined fashion i think mm. uh similarly it goes similarly with traps and now traps is something i would use a bit more uh again i haven't done them too much in my current campaign just because you've not done too much t traditional dungeon delving mm -hmm. uh but i the way i like to introduce traps and whatnot is in I like to put them in in battles and they're not in a sense of, oh, this is a pit trap. You fall down here or you the water starts rushing in or whatever. But it's something that the players can activate during a scene to, to increase the intensity and up the ante. So mm. uh, you guys were fighting on like a bridge and then you made a lot of noise and an avalanche started and there was like a time factor to wrap up this fire and get off the bridge before you all get crushed by snow. 
So things like uh, that can add to the uh, the drama. And to me, I, I would consider that a trap. It's something that you've activated and is now coming for you. I I generally don't like traps where it's just, okay, you've failed to spot this, uh, be- which mechanically that could just be a passive perception thing. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, okay, I've described something and whatnot, but you've trod on it anyway. Some to me that sometimes does come off a bit cheap, just because at the end of the day we're imagining things in our head. In our head, There's, you can't actually see it. Yeah. So the DM saying, "Oh, you didn't see that." Well, it's like, well, I'm imagining <laughs> something different to you. So uh, yeah, unlikely I will see it. And I don't generally don't like things where it's just like, okay, roll a saving throw. Uh, you either pass, you fail, you take some damage, you fall, whatever. I like the idea where, okay, you've activated the trap. Something's about to happen or is happening. Now, throw it back to the player. What do you do to save yourself from this situation? And there are multiple answers. And not the the only answer isn't just roll a deck save to get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, I, so I like to give the players... In my traps, I like to give them like a round to do something. Especially for spellcasters. Because I feel like this works really well where it's... You can do some crazy stuff with to stop things like, oh no, a boulder's falling on you. It's about to hit you. What do you do? The spellcaster could be like, okay, I'll dive out of the way, in which case it'd be like a deck save. Mm-hmm. But they could also be, um, I summon a big beast hand and I catch it. Or I teleport away. I misty step. I dimension door. You know, give the give the utility characters the the option to uh, to utilize their utility when dealing with traps, I think is is pretty fun. Sometimes you do just need a saving throw and whatnot, and that can highlight other characters' abilities, like the uh, like the barbarian who's got the oh, they get like advantage on against traps they can see that are dex based, I think, or whatever. Can't remember what that's called. Uh, so that yeah, you want sense? if yeah, danger sense. That's it. Yeah. So if if you've got players with abilities like that, you want to give them the opportunity to highlight them. But I don't think every trap should just be a save. No. So for me, I think it's a mix. I traps are a cornerstone of D&D 100% and they go back to the old dungeon delving days and I think when you're I, I mean our adventures recently have had nothing to do with dungeons so I think when we finally do a dungeon it's going to be like oh my god we haven't, <laughs> haven't been in a dungeon in years this will be fun like there'll be a novelty to it and I think using like the classic oh there's a pitfall trap you know or a, oh there's a mimic or you know that kind of stuff um there will be fun because there'll be there'll be a novelty to it i think if you're doing it all the time that's when you need to become creative i definitely think that things like um uh let's say there's a trap where there's arrow holes in the wall and there's a pressure plate i think that trap could either be all right none of you see it on the passive perceptions none of you said you were looking for traps so you activate it and the arrow shoot and you take damage that's boring the way i would use it Mm. and develop it more would be uh, okay, you're walking down the dark corridor. None of you have seen it passively. Maybe the rogue's having an off day. He's forgotten to check for traps. But you've got a torch in the air, and I'm describing the walls, and then suddenly I say, okay, you hear a click, and you all stop. What do you want to do? And then it's the kind of, okay, well, we've heard a click. So now what do we do to to find out where that's come from, and how do we stop it from triggering? And that gives you the opportunity as players to then say, like, okay, well, I'm going to... Like my my ideal response from a player, if I said that, would be them saying, "Okay, well, can I look around to see if I see anything?" And they roll perception. I say, "Okay, you see an indentation on the floor underneath your barbarian's foot," and they're like, "Oh, okay. Um, what do you want to do about it?" And then they say something like, "I'm going to take my dagger 
and wedge it into the floor so that the pressure plate doesn't come up when they take their foot off. No roll there. I'll let them do that. Maybe a dex roll. Maybe if it's like, I don't know, if it's a really difficult trap. Maybe if they're like level 12 and I need them to actually do something. Like it's not just a menial trap. Um, and I want them to actually feel like they're doing something. Then maybe they'll do a dex roll. But maybe if it's like a small little thing at the start of a dungeon, I might just let them get away with that. And make them feel creative about overcoming these obstacles. That, I think, is a much more dynamic and fun way to use traps. And that, that click mechanic is something I've seen somewhere online. Someone says they, they, they literally just say the word click. And their players know that if they hear that word, that something's triggered and they've got a round to work out what it is before something happens. Um, mm. So they've all got basically six seconds to act, which is kind of like what you're saying with giving the utility caster a chance to do something. I think yeah. um, the one place, and it, it's, it might sound a bit weird when I say this, the one place where I've seen this done well is Tomb of Horrors. Because yes, that dungeon is built to kill PCs. <laughs> That's the history of it. But if you actually read through it, a lot of the solutions to the puzzles, especially in the... Um, Tears of the Union Portal 5e rework, a lot of the solutions that they offer for the traps are things that are creative thinking, like, you know, explain to me how you as a player are feeling the crevices in this wall. And they'll explain, like, I'm going to run my fingers up and down, or I'm going to I'm gonna look with a light in an eye. Like, if they describe it a certain way, and they're tactile about it, or they describe using a crowbar to wedge open the door, or something like that, then they get a different tactile response from the trap and that's the stuff mm. that i love the best trap i found in that one was the one where you go down essentially the wrong passage you go to a dead end mm. and the uh you're in a hallway and the floor starts to tip into some lava yes uh because we had ample <laughs> different ways of uh of trying to fix that so if you imagine it as it's essentially like a seesaw pendulum and the whole thing begins to tip as you walk down one end. Mm. And uh, if you sort of stay, stand down there too long, it's pretty much no leveling it at that point. Yeah, and if it you begins go to too slide far. into lava. So first of all, my monk tried to use his staff, his 10-foot pole, to wedge in between the two surfaces to stop himself. So that was one thing he tried to do. He, he didn't roll very well and failed. Uh, we had... We had that magic item, the paints, which let you like paint things into existence. Mm -hmm. One of our characters painted a hole in the uh, in the the floor itself, and as it basically tipped vertical, we could then like sit in that hole. Mm. Uh, we had a character summon a bunch of pixies to allow us to fly to stop us, uh, and then we still needed to get from one end to the other. Um, we had characters. What do we do? We had someone... Oh, yeah, because we had a bunch of uh, minions as well. Yeah, you had, like, little and helpers. I, I had two little goblins. I really didn't want to die, even though they were completely useless. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I was, like... I had, like, my, my stick wedged into the wall, which I was then hanging from, which I was then holding those two from. And it really did feel, like, cinematic as hell. And it went... This whole thing went over, like, eight rounds. Oh, yeah. Because it progressively tipped, and the mechanics were built into it for it to do that. And so there were so many creative options we had for how to stop ourselves from dying this is the thing uh, like a tomb of horrors gets a lot of flack for being like this awful campaign like everyone like now especially nowadays like they're like people i always see people saying like oh it's awful like don't do it unless you want to lose your characters and and know what you're going into and i think absolutely you need to sit down with your players and say okay here's a dungeon it'll be a lot of fun it's deadly how do you feel it's a bit geared against you rather than for you so like you know set it up but i think it's one of the most fun dungeons to have a laugh in and play as a one shot 
Yeah, for sure. No, I really, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, There's a lot of a lot of great inspiration for traps in that dungeon. Yes, they are built to like catch players out, but I think, yeah. to be honest, and I and I, this might be a, a hot take. This might be controversial. I think traps in D and D should be built to catch your players out. Like, yeah, there should be ways for them to discover them. And yeah, there should be ways for them to overcome them. But a trap is set to spring and it's set to hurt you. So why would you build a trap that doesn't do that? Because then you're just teaching your players that there are no consequences. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I suppose that there's a balance to be struck between things feeling... uh, sufficiently dangerous and realistic Mm. and feeling unfair yeah and that's something you just need to feel out as a dm and also you have to gauge it from your players because some players will be more susceptible to certain ways of dming than others in pretty much all aspects of dming but especially when it comes to traps and and these sort of gotcha moments yeah Uh, but i like i like i say i like the traps where it's okay i've got you that's the the shock. What are you going to do now? The, but now the player has an option to uh, to be creative or mm. to save themselves or do whatever. So I think I like how um, I feel like Mercer does this quite well in Crit Roll. Where generally, when something like that happens, he almost always follows it up with, "What are you going to do?" Yeah, yeah, and and the players have like an action to to resolve themselves. Or he sometimes breaks the. Uh, the rules of the game a bit in terms of the action economy where if someone's falling or doing something they're like okay can i lean out and grab them can i summon this to do them and probably rules is written like you couldn't really do it but he's just like yeah okay like give me a roll to see if you can do it fast enough or whatever yeah. and I, I think that's that's pretty much fine uh, i think that, that that kind of being able to bend and snap the rules a little bit as you go is the sign of someone who understands the game because there's that whole line of uh, rule of cool and I like to remember that like if the player says they want to do something and I'm actually like yeah that's a really that's a really ingenious way to overcome this obstacle and yeah technically in the in the in the game you couldn't do that in the rules as written but do you know what you've come up with it it's fun it's gonna make it's gonna make the game more fun let's see if you can do it and we'll pick a role just off the top of our head you know decks or strength based on what the action is Mm. um yeah no i like that stuff the other type of traps that i have used more frequently recently with having a game set in a city are those typical kind of is the chest trapped is the door trapped how am i gonna as a rogue get in and steal the things without poisoning myself those kind of traps i had a lot of fun and i don't want to give you any spoilers because you haven't done the heist yet building not traps i would call them more like security measures into the haberdashery um so cowrie is planning on heisting this haberdashery where they have very expensive jewelry and clothing and the pot take at this point is somewhere around like 15 16k because you've commissioned <laughs> so i i literally i built this whole heist and it's like oh there's like thirteen thousand gold worth of stuff here i need which to, is a lot it's a lot. a lot especially in a game when you're tr- where the goal is to try and get half a million dragons and i'm like right i need to make it very difficult for you to do this and then you had the audacity to go in as your character and commission a four and a half grand gold piece piece of jewelry to have in stock for the day you steal it 
Yeah. I just well, I just thought I got to drive up that price, didn't you? You know. I mean, in, sweet in the deal. A staff effort. I allowed you to do it because that is ingenious and something I never thought of. But when I was building this stuff out, I was like, right. There's a lot of cash here. I've made it tasty. It's got to be difficult and it's got to be. And in Waterdeep, it's almost, it's it's deadly. Like if you get caught stealing this much money, it's either death or um, pay for what you stole, pay your damages, which you wouldn't be able to do anyway. Um, you know, workers labor, get exiled. So it's like the death of a character for this campaign if you get caught. Um, and what's interesting about uh, heists in general and roguish sort of stealth antics is it can be difficult to do in D&D because if you sort of do it rules as written, right? Yeah. Pretty much every heist is doomed to fail, no matter how good you are at stealth, because over the course of a heist, you're going to be rolling to stealth, to lockpick, whatever, many, many times, right? Mm. Maybe 15, 20 times over the course of a heist. And generally... If you fail once, the heist is over. Yeah. You get caught. And obviously that's not very fun because even with an, an excellent modifier, the RNG is not going to go in your favor eventually. At some point you are going to roll low yeah. and fail. Yeah, it's a chance. And it, it, and it kind of feels sort of shitty when it's like, okay, I'm this master thief, but I rolled a one. So, eh, I guess the heist is over for me. I've been caught. It's like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not great. So... I think you can mitigate that by, as a player, I'm I'm thinking, okay, how can I minimize the amount of times I need to roll for something? Mm-hmm. And you can do that when you're working with your DM by being creative with things. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, instead of, um, you know, me going and picking up that artifact, I'm going to go get my uh, unseen servant to go and do it so he can get his head chopped off or whatever by the spinning blades um i'm going to uh prepare in advance make sure i'm invisible so uh, if i'm actually invisible then i'm going to probably have to roll less stealth checks because you know it's going to just be inherently harder to detect me uh things like that having a good escape plan etc um alkari needs to get his hand on a couple of dimension door scrolls so he can uh it doesn't have to come out back out once he goes in there which will be handy for him um what's really fun about this one as well is because so there are the, the whole way of thinking when i was building these and i and i call them more security um security measures rather than traps is that everything that's in there has to have a way to be deactivated by the shop owner so every night this shop owner sets these traps in place, sets these security measures like you would set an alarm code at a building and then he leaves. And he comes back the next morning, he puts in the code and they're all then deactivated, right? So there's got to be a way. So when I was building these these traps out and they're like, you know, there are trap drawers and there are trap chests and there's a safe and stuff like that. It was like, right, okay, so that's the trap. How does the person who knows how it works turn it off? So like, is there a secret switch or is there a secret button? Okay, how would a character find that? Things like that. And that was a really fun way to think about building traps because it actually mm. then gave them more of a realistic feel because you don't set a trap and then you have to spring it every time you open it. I did read, I'm, I'm reading some D&D novels recently and I read recently one of a, like a dwarf who was, had a secret chest, right? And the chest had a hidden bottom and he had his like life's possessions in it. And it was trapped. It was trapped with like a poison dart. But 
he didn't have a way to to deactivate it so there was this whole scene of him describing how he took a block of wood and put it in place so that when he opened the chest the dart went into the wood and i was like that's such a cool solution for a player to come up with um as a as a way of disarming a trap so different ways of thinking like that when building this stuff is is a lot of fun for me and i would say as well because you have connections in the xanapa's guild and you've got them like looking into you know go and get as much information as you can you've uh, you've already started to think creatively and you've already have a bone you'll already have like a, an advantage as well and it's like i like that yeah um i was thinking about it the other day some of the stuff that you're going to get you're going to get to find out because of that that request which is quite fun um using your yeah, resources i think that especially when it comes to rogues and sneaking into places uh i think you can improve the flow of things by making certain aspects more abstract Mm -hmm. but then making certain aspects very very literal so what i mean by that is okay i'm gonna go across this field uh, i roll a self check okay i don't know you don't necessarily need to describe to me how you move from each bush to bush (laughs) or whatever right that okay that's slightly abstracted but then okay i'm gonna open i'm gonna somehow get into this window uh quietly and through the thing i could i could just make someone make a stealth check for that or a slight hand check but i think it's actually more interesting i said okay how are you going to open this squeaky window and get in Mm. without being and so if they then say to me well i brought this oil i'm going to oil up the sides of the window here i'm going to grease it uh and then i'm actually going to slip this uh thin piece of metal that i had from the other side and do the, the latch and whatever Mm. and then if they describe all that to me i'm probably not even going to make them roll because they just did like they just do it like what they've said to me logically makes quite a lot of sense yeah and whereas if they just said i'm gonna open the window and they're like and they and then they i said how and they're like well i don't know i'm a rogue <laughs> i'm like okay give me a slight hand check or whatever right mm. uh so there's multiple ways of doing it but i think uh the onus is on the dm to pick out those moments where they they ask for a bit more detail yeah and i think it actually makes it much more rewarding for the rogue. this is why i like playing a rogue in these sneaky environments because I can creatively come up with solutions uh, of how to do things that mechanically make sense in my own head. Mm -hmm. And then when they work in the game, I'm like, yes, because it's the only thing that for me about D and D that really sucks is when you come up with a creative solution, whatever, but then it requires a roll and and you roll low anyway. And it's just like, that just doesn't feel quite right in that sense. And don't get me wrong. It's a game. You need to have roles. That's how, that's why D&D works. Mm-hmm. But I think the DM can control how much power each of those roles have and when it's actually suitable mm-hmm. for a role to have a lot of agency over an encounter or when it's actually on the player's intelligence to have a lot of agency over an encounter. So. Yeah, for sure. I think as well, the um, building these traps inside the city was a lot of fun because it was like, Okay, in a dungeon, traps are set to kill you. Like they're set to stop intruders and to be and to warn other people away. Like the big, the big decapitated body at the doorway says, oh, "Don't come in here. You're going to lose your life." But in a shop, in the middle of a city, when a rogue comes in and pilfers things, they're going to set off traps. And rather than the person, the owner, come back to the shop and find a dead body, what they want to do is come back and find evidence that helps you find the person and then get them convicted. Because in the city, there's law and order. Um, so it was mm. it was fun building traps. There's there's one that I really want to tell you about, but I don't know. <laughs> no, you can't. I can't. I can't. can't. There's one that I'm really proud of um, that I'll talk about at some point 
when you do the heist that um i'm just really interested to see if you set it off and if you like if you work out how it works if you want if you work out why it works that way and what the what the reason for it is because that would be really fun but i'm actually like now that i've built this heist out originally i was like oh, how am i going to stop joe from getting thirteen thousand gold pieces but now i'm like actually i want you to do it and i want you to succeed because it would be it's just gonna be so much fun to root for you going through all these traps and watch you create well i'm so much more motivated to do it now because now we have those like the, the uh the rune smithing rules and stuff like that yeah. put in. it's actually a decent spot to spend my money on yeah uh and it turns out 13 grand is not actually that much money when you look at what you can oh god no spend on things well that's so, the thing because i was like right i've put this this i've put the the way for you to get the money in there and there's a way for you to potentially walk away from the end of this campaign with all five hundred thousand dragons um so there's got to be something for you to do with it and obviously there's the tavern built into the dragonized book but you want something more so i got in the uh the grand runesmith and the grand smithy yeah oh man interesting interesting well, that's if we even get to do the heist at this point is that everything's gone pete tong in that game so uh well look, we're gonna play well, we're gonna play next weekend so we'll see what happens but i'm um i'm definitely looking forward to it for sure for sure, for sure. all right mate. well that was um that was a lot there that was a good one i think that was a yeah that was a, that was a good little conversation i feel like my D appetite has been sated yeah, Satiated. I mean it's been put. Right it's been put at bay for now. For, yeah, for now. I mean, I, I still I would rather be playing D and D today, but you know, there you go. These things happen in life, don't they? Yeah, it's a cruel world. All right. Well, look, next week <laughs> is episode one hundred. So, my goodness! Oh man, a hundred episodes. Crazy. It is crazy. Absolutely crazy. I don't know what we're gonna. Who would have thunk it? I don't know what we're gonna talk about. Um. I don't know. Yeah, cool. Graph to have. I say we're gonna have, to have a good topic. It's just gonna be. Just be I'm gonna rock up, having thought of nothing. Yeah. I'm gonna go to you. I'm gonna say, Ben, read the emails. Uh, what are we gonna talk about? You're gonna go to the emails. You're gonna pick. Hopefully, probably the first one you see, and that'll be the topic. So, uh, <laughs> so you think I look, do? Guys, if you want, if you want your topic on next week, send us an email. Okay, Ben, what's the email? We speak common at hotmail.com. There you go. All okay. right. You could be episode 100's topic. To be fair. Think about how great that would be for you. If it, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, with it being episode 100, it would be nice to to get as many listener shout outs in as we can. So if you want to have a little shout out, drop us an email. And, and when I say a little shout out, I mean, don't send me an email with 55 pages worth of info because I won't read it all, um, especially if we get a load of them. We might only get, we might get none, Joe, but it's fine. Um, if you want a little episode 100 shout out, Drop us an email. We speak common at hotmail.com. Um, cool. We're on Twitter at We Speak Common. We are. We have a website. It's WeSpeakCommon.com at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. And uh, if you go and buy some dice from Dice Dungeon, use the code We Speak Common for ten percent off. Cool. Mm-hmm. Is that everything? Great. I believe so, Ben. I believe so. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go back to running, sleeping, and/or eating whatever it's either one of those three that you're doing i'm i'm gonna go to mcdonald's right now probably get myself 20 nugs oh you healthy healthy boy all right well have... i've been thinking about it for the last half an hour i'm so... glad you've been here for this podcast <laughs> i'm glad to hear it all right well have okay. have fun with that i will do bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening today if you like the podcast do us a favor Leave us a like or review on your platform of choice and share us with your friends. 
You can get in touch with us on Twitter at WeSpeakCommon or through the email WeSpeakCommon at Hotmail.com. The music in the podcast is Street Dancing by Timecrawler82 and is licensed under an attribution license CC by NC. You can find it on the Free Music Archive. Music